Welcome to the 247th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a discussion of historically black colleges and universities and public health in Nashville with Andrea Ringer, Larotha Williams, and A. Hannibal Leach. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live at its new time weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, March 26th, 2021, there are 2,757,473 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States from COVID-19 has climbed to 546,825. 11,692 of those deaths come from the state of Tennessee. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is, her love kept patients alive for a little bit longer. This was written by Eli Kahan and was published in Kaiser Health News. Siffy Robertson was a nurse in Hopewell, Virginia at Wonder City Rehabilitation and Nursing Center. Michela Jones has two siblings, but remembers as a child thinking of all her neighbors in small town Virginia as a family. Her mother, Sivy Robertson, opened her door to children across Petersburg, housing anyone who needed a place to sleep and feeding those without enough to eat. Among Robertson's delicacies, fresh baked lemon tarts and sweet potato pies. She was mama bear to all of us, Jones said. Robertson had foregone a youthful dream of becoming a nurse. When her daughter became a nurse at age 22, Robertson reconsidered. Five years later, she graduated from Centura College in Virginia Beach. Robertson cherished her work. For lovers and nurturers like my mother, you can't just set boundaries, Jones said. Her love kept patients alive for a little bit longer. That love motivated her during the pandemic, Jones said. Robertson was scared, her daughter said. Her mother told her that the virus was not controlled at all where she worked, and she brought her own protective equipment, Jones said. On December 5th of last year, Robertson was feeling ill and tired, her daughter said. On the 12th of December, she was hospitalized and an hour into the year 2021, she died. Richmond Times-Dispatch reported that 67 residents and 25 staff members became sick with COVID this winter. At least 10 people died. That followed a spring outbreak at the facility in which 31 people were infected and five died, the newspaper reported. Okay, I'd like to turn to our conversation for today and let me introduce my guests. 
This is one of the partnership episodes today. I'm really happy to announce this is a partnership that I've been doing with the LePage Center for History, uh, with uh, the Page Center for History um, in the public interest at uh, Villanova University. And uh, the projects that we've been talking about have just been wonderful. So I'm really excited to talk about today. So let me introduce my guest, Dr. A. Hannibal Leach, is the interim assistant dean of the School of Humanities and Behavioral and Social Sciences of Fisk University. He's also an assistant professor of political science and director of the African-American Studies Program. He's the author of The Social Context of Public Opinion and Foreign Policy, which explores the role social identity plays in shaping mass attitudes toward US foreign policy. His current research uses computational methods to understand how critical race theory helps to explain political phenomena in the context of international politics and amongst American political leadership. Dr. Leach also authors a tri-monthly publication known as the Leach Political Report. The publication provides an informed black perspective on political issues concerning the American South. Dr. Andrea Ringer is an Atlantic World Scholar at Tennessee State University with a focus on the history of transnational workers. Her current project asks questions about the circus as a workplace and the history of its migrant laborers. Using more than a dozen archives from across the country, interviews, trade journals, and hundreds of local newspapers, her work explores how the relevancy of the circus depended on the blurred lines between worker and performer. Her previous publications explore punitive justice and prison privatization, and she currently has two articles on circus workers currently in revision, and you can catch her recently published article, Because It Is Cheaper and Better, 1980s Corrections, Policies, and Prison Privatization in Tennessee in the Tennessee Historical Quarterly. My third guest is Larotha Williams. Dr. Larotha Williams Jr. is a scholar of African-American Civil War and Reconstruction and Public History at Tennessee State University. Dr. Williams has worked as a historic science specialist for the state of Florida, acted as coordinator of the African-American Studies Program at Armstrong Atlantic State University, and served as a trustee of the historic Savannah Foundation in Savannah, Georgia. At Tennessee State, he coordinates the North Nashville Heritage Project, an effort that seeks to encourage a greater understanding of the history of North Nashville, including but not limited to Jefferson Street and its historic relationship to the greater Nashville community. His most recent publication is a work he co-edited with Amy Thurber entitled, I'll Take You There, Exploring Nashville's Sites of Social Justice, which will be published by Vanderbilt University Press in April 2021. Andrea Ringer, Hannibal Leach, and Larotha Williams, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So, um, Dr. Williams, I think you may be muted, so we'll just take you off the mute there, and we're and then we're good. It's good to see you. Um, so I would like to um, start the way I usually do, which is just to ask people where they're calling in from and what the pandemic looks like there. And if you're all in Nashville, that's fine because you can even tell us down to the neighborhood level how how things are how things are looking. It's usually quite interesting to find to find out. Hannibal, can I start with you, please? Yes, and thank you again. Thank you for having us. Uh, uh, greetings to all of your your viewers and listeners. Um, I am calling in. Well, I am calling in from Nashville, Tennessee, uh, uh, North Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, 
Uh, Fisk University is a private, uh, uh, historically black uh, college university, HBCU in North Nashville. Um, the, uh, the pandemic at our level is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very, it's pretty, still pretty devastating. It's still pretty shocking. Uh, but there is a, a sliver of, of, of hope that things are turning around at this point. Um, we had a mass uh, vaccination uh, event uh, take place here in Nashville just a little, uh, a little about a week ago. And, uh, you know, a lot of people were vaccinated. I think we're at 13% in Nashville, uh, having people vaccinated. So that's a good, you know, that's something that's good. Uh, and there are uh, uh, plans underway uh, to have more mass vaccination. Um, the president of the United States announced just yesterday that the uh the goal of his administration is to have those vaccines available for everyone, whoever wants to get a vaccine available, uh, May 1st. Um, so I'll stop there before we even get into uh, the, idea, the dynamics of, you know, is everyone feeling comfortable of taking the, 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 the vaccination and which one, which one will be available. But uh, right now, I think that, uh, you know, we're still in the throes of it. We're still in the mix of it. But it's good to see some light at the end of the tunnel. Well, thank you for that orientation. Larotha, let me give you a chance to, to sort of tell us a little bit about how it's been looking in your neighborhood. And I'm particularly interested, too, in a state like Tennessee. I don't know if this is correct, but quite often we end up with a situation where um, big, cities, big cities in red states, there's a sort of governance um, issue back and forth between the state capital and, and the city. I wonder how that might be playing out there in Nashville. Um, when it, when we first entered into this time that we're in right now, I was very disturbed because um, you had these tensions in the city between um, folks that wanted to wear masks and then others who were reluctant to do so. Um, I think things are getting a little bit better now. I just got back from Walmart before I um, came on here. And I'm one of those guys that'll go into the spaces and look and see who's wearing masks. So um, we're doing better in, in that regard. Um, you still have some tension between those who want the vaccination and those who do not. And um, I don't know, as far as Nashville is concerned, I, I think we're doing a pretty good job because we've had two mass vaccination events over the last month or so. And I think they mm. vaccinated, what, 10,000 people last weekend. Mm. So um, in Nashville, I think it's OK. But in other areas of the state, I'm not so sure. Um, I was in Wilson County couple of days ago and they had a event and the line had to be they did they did it um the way they were vaccinated folks they were doing a drive-through right so they had like three lines of cars and drive up and get a shot in the arm mm -hmm. and that line was had to be half a mile if anything so wow. they they um they were getting the job done but i'm um 
not so sure about the rural areas, so I can't speak to that. Um, going downtown is still a bit problematic because Nashville is known for its tourism, and you can go downtown, you can see people still gathering in large groups without masks. The bicycle taverns, which I hated before the the hated them before the coronavirus, but now they're still going through yelling at people without masks. So um, getting mixed messages here. In the bluer areas, I think we're doing as best as we can, but in the other areas, I'm not so sure. I love the idea that you're the kind of guy who will go to a Walmart to check out who, if people are wearing masks or not. That's going to stick with me. I appreciate you sharing that, that detail. Andrea, let me bring you in on this, just initial sort of your, your sense of the situation there. Yeah, so I live, um, I live in Southeast Nashville. Um, Nashville released a heat map every Tuesday. And so it, you know, the darker red areas were the, were the places where COVID was concentrated. So it, it um, organized it by zip code. And, and I was always, I live in the darkest red area where COVID was always hitting. Um, there's a high population of essential workers in this area. But um, like Dr. Williams, when you, um, I'm not going out and people watching for masks, but what I do notice in this area is people are wearing masks, right? It's, a, it's just that folks are, we have a lot of construction workers that, um, that work in this area, right? And those are, that's one of the hot spots in Nashville. The other weird thing about living down here is I'm, I'm about a mile away from the county line. So we're in a state that uh, didn't do a statewide mask mandate. Nashville did, you know, but um, the county neighboring, right, the county to the south um, of us, the mask mandate's already gone. And so it's been a very odd thing when you, when you do cross that county line that people aren't wearing masks, right? The minute they didn't have to, they stopped by and large. Um, so it, it, southeast Nashville is, is sort of an odd place to be where you just one mile away and it looks so radically different. Well, I'm sorry it's been so bad in your neighborhood. And what a... Uh, interesting you know, perspective too. People say those kind of public health um, announcements and requirements don't matter, but literally as you cross a county line, you see um, that it matters. Well, I'm so uh, pleased you all could join me and congratulations on winning that page grant. And We have lots of things to talk about today. I think it would be good though to set the stage a little bit for listeners who might not be as familiar. And um, Dr. Leach, I'm going to start with you and then I'll bring others others in, just to give us a little bit of an understanding of the history of historically back black colleges and universities in, in the United States. I know it's impossible to get you to summarize it um, in such a vast history, but maybe just hit some of the high points of it so that people can understand where we're coming from on this topic. Yes, most certainly. And I think Dr. Williams will be the best, the best uh, uh, for this question. But I will say that as, as far as, uh, you know, as Fisher University is concerned, and you can kind of look at Fisher University as sort of like the composite for, you know, HBCUs uh, more broadly uh, in America. It was, uh, uh, it was uh, created, founded right after the uh, Civil War, uh, where uh, the Civil, before the Civil War, you really didn't see uh, African-Americans having the opportunity to uh, educate themselves uh, uh, academically. Uh, um, right after the Civil War uh, is when we began to see a lot of, a lot of some of these uh, historically black colleges and universities being created so that 
uh, uh, African-Americans could have the opportunity uh, to uh, better themselves academically, uh, 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 better themselves, uh, become better citizens, uh, uh, better themselves, but also to also go out and to uh, uh, educate other uh, African-Americans so that they can begin to sort of build this process. Um, um, I will talk about the reconstruction period just very, very briefly, but I know that Dr. Williams, again, is the expert on that. But uh, uh, during reconstruction, we began to see a, a radical change in terms of, of education, uh, especially in the, in the American South and as it relates to the state. Um, so uh, uh, Fisk University, uh, also Howard University, these, uh, these institutions were began by um, uh, uh, former generals, former officers, former officials, uh, in the Union Army, uh, uh, they came to the South and they wanted to give African-Americans the, uh, the best opportunity they could to be productive citizens in their own communities. They didn't, so they wouldn't have to rely on, you know, uh, their former enslavers uh, to sort of direct their, uh, direct their uh, uh, political and social uh, livelihoods, uh, basically. Larotha, let me bring you in on on that and and get some uh, you know additional context for that that you might like to add. Um, HBCUs um, were established initially to most of them were established to train black teachers, but then as time progresses. Um, you know, you have the early colleges that are established during Reconstruction, such as Howard Hampton, Fisk, and Tougaloo, and Talladega. I'm afraid I'm missing one. If any of my friends are watching this, they're going to get angry because how come you didn't see anything about my school? Um, Atlanta University. Um, these were the ones that emerged during Reconstruction. Um, most of them had the backing of religious or benevolent organizations and the Freedmen's Bureau as well. But as time progresses, they begin to take a more, uh, um, a, a, is a vocational sort of ethos that begins to dominate them. And that's largely because of Booker T. Washington, right? He goes down to Tuskegee and he establishes that. And many of you are familiar with you know, this this model that he had this based upon this philosophy that Black's most immediate me need would be to learn skills, learn trades, learn vocations. So you have uh, several colleges that emerged during this period that um, receive um, Muriel land grant funding. That is, these are grants that come from the federal government that encourage them to pursue like agriculture and some science and so forth. Um, the federal government gave um, money to the states, which the states were supposed to match and give them to the HBCUs. Um, but rarely did that occur. But most of the, the HBCUs follow this, this Washington model. And if you go and you look at some of the schools, um, 
such as Tennessee ANI, which was TSU's designation when it was first created, right? The ANI stands for agricultural and industrial. Mm-hmm. Or I'm from Tallahassee, Florida, and the school HBCU that dominates that area is Florida A&M University, so agricultural and mechanical. So they do this, but then they gradually get to the point to where they push toward um, working the balance between liberal arts and these sort of vocational um, this this these sort of vocational schools or vocational pursuits that they they really built their livelihoods on. Um, and and one thing to note when you talk about HBCUs is that there's um, and this figures prominently I think into our discussion today. Um, their relationship with the communities that surround them are intimate. I mean, very, very personal. Um, so much so, you know, there's a friendly controversy or, or debate or rivalry, if you will, between HBCUs could be in the same state or or interstate. I didn't realize how much folks at TSU hated people from um, Tallahassee, Florida, from FAMU, but TSU hired me anyway, right? So, um, but it, it it's something that's very powerful, so much so to the point to where the graduates almost become family in some regards, because the teachers that graduate from Fisk and graduate from TSU, chances are they was going, if they stayed in Nashville, they were going to be teaching Black students. The faculty and the, the administrators um, were held in high esteem in these communities. So someone, for example, like my friend Hannibal here, if he were to walk into a, a church to say back in the 1930s, immediately they would know who that guy was. He was from Fisk University. But there was also, um, it's also a responsibility that these schools had beyond education. That is, they were supposed to prepare the students for life after college. But by the same token, the work that they did there was to benefit the community. So at TSU, you know, they have a garden that the community can go come to and, you know, plant greens or whatever you want to. I just recently found out when you're raising chickens on campus, um, you can grow grapes for wine. Um, there are goats on campus too. So um, the, the, I guess I'm saying all that to say this, the relationship with um, between HBCUs and the community that they serve, uh, something that's profound and is very different. I, I graduated from Florida State University, but I really didn't have any strong feelings for FSU, not like I did FAMU. Well, that perspective is is really valuable, and it's it's uh, really helps give me a little bit of an insight. And I want to ask. Andrea now to talk about this this project. We're going to catch more history, but maybe bring us at this 
point a little bit up to speed on this project that you've got going on HBCUs and public health in Nashville. Andrea, can you tell us what's brought the three of you together in this project? Yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, the three of us have, have uh, worked together on other projects as well. Um, and a lot of this is built on the back of um, the North Nashville Heritage Project, which I know Dr. Williams will speak about in a few minutes. But um, when we were thinking about we saw the grant, um, the call for the proposals early and we were, we've been thinking through it for a few months. And um, Nashville's HBCUs, um, you know, like Dr. Williams said, they are intimately tied with their communities and they're in a close proximity to each other. And so Fisk, TSU, and then the other school is Meharry that, you know, that really ties this project together and that we have a black medical school in Nashville as well. Um, and so a lot of this project was thinking about what it means to have a black medical school in this space, um, particularly when we're tying it back to previous pandemics, um, uh, especially the tuberculosis, um, we were tying it back to that was a moment where there had been previously there had been more black medical schools, but they were closed in the kind of in the shadow of the Flexner report, um, which streamlined a lot of medical schools and, and ended up closing um, a lot of black facilities. And so it left just two, including Meharry. So we were interested in what it meant to have Meharry as a longstanding black medical institution within these spaces of other HBCUs. Um, and, and what that meant for a community. And again, like, like Dr. Williams said, how it interacted with North Nashville, um, as well as CSU and Fisk. Lorotha, let me bring you back in, uh, since Andrea was sort of telling us that you've been working on a previous project, this North Nashville Heritage Project, which seems to have laid out some of the groundwork uh, for that. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? I think your microphone may be muted. No problem. It began, it began in 2010 when um, I was involved in something called the Gateway to Heritage Project. And this project was creating a, a plaza um, at the end of Jefferson Street that celebrated Jefferson Street as a business and um, business and entertainment district. So um, we had a former Freedom Rider give us a walking tour of Jefferson Street, and it was amazing. And you know, I I, um, I took my Black Nashville class on this tour, so we walked and we looked and we listened to the history. But then, when we got back into the classroom, um, my students began asking me questions. And I will confess, if you see me doing something that's kind of interesting, chances are my students are the one that pushed me to do it. But um, one student remarked, you know, that's all well and good, Dr. Williams, but what about the folks that lived adjacent to Jefferson Street, particularly the poor? And um, I had to be kind of quick on my toes. I said, okay, what we'll do, we'll find out together. So um, put some recorders in their hands and these most of the students knew some people from North Nashville. And I asked them to talk to the elders to find out what we had perhaps been missing in our traditional look at the strip. Now this project was only supposed to last for one year. 
it's 2021 now, but that that that's okay because um, we're we're continually incorporating more perspectives. We're asking better questions, and so perhaps this project was one that was supposed to evolve. Um, some of the lessons that I've learned um, from it was that um, I learned about the importance of cultivating relationships. Because initially we were just going out trying to get oral histories, but then people began to, to give me stuff. So you had to think about material culture. Then we had to think very seriously about how we would present this stuff to the public because you're dealing with people's memories, things that are precious to them. So we, in this project, we've, we've learned to cultivate relationships so much so that we'll show up at their churches, um, go to their events, whether they're birthdays for the oldest person in the church or even some funerals sometimes. Um, when they laugh, we laugh with them. And when they cry, we cry with them. So um, they know us. They reveal things to us the same way they would family, knowing that we're not trying to exploit them. And another really important thing I think that I've learned in the project is to pay attention to the people that work on the, that live their lives on the quote margin. Because um, oftentimes their stories, their memories um, will enhance and sometimes challenge the narrative. I, um, since I started the project, I look at the civil rights movement in an entirely different way than what I was trained because I, I um, didn't think about the importance of bookies, people that would have money on hand to bail people out of jail once they got arrested. I didn't, um, you know, I didn't realize how important maybe in the church, right? The lady that fries chicken that makes dinner plates. Um, I remember talking to a woman who, um, said all she did was fried chicken during the civil rights movement. I was like, fried chicken for whom? And she said, for the students that got locked up. And um, it was amazing because she talked about frying a plate for the jailer to make sure that the students got fed. And, um, and the last point, and I, I can go on about North Nashville Project, Heritage Project. Um, don't we need to pay attention to people that might not seem important. Even sometimes the, the guy that is amongst us that has the wild ideas. Because at the end of the day, what I'm what I'm seeing is that um, you know, there are a lot of parallels between what we're observing right now in terms of protests and what we are protesting with what went on in the 1960s or 70s or 80s, even that TSU. So there's this project, even though it's supposed to be short term, we're still learning a lot. And every single student that I 
have helping me with it. Um, it's building relationships with the community and challenging the narratives that have been um, that have been taught to us. We're starting to think that hey, all this stuff that I've been taught about Nashville might be inaccurate. It might be made up. Um, but that's 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 the project. I want to, well, thank you for sharing that. I want to underline a couple of things that I heard in there that really impressed me. One is giving credit to your students for uh, coming up with good ideas and following their pedagogical lead. And, and I appreciate that statement and share that sentiment. Absolutely. The other, and uh, Hannibal, I want to bring you in now to talk about how the transition is going from that North National project into what you're doing now in the middle of COVID. But I'm really struck by the importance and I've talked to lots of people on COVID calls who have brought projects together very quickly in the middle of the pandemic, naturally, um, but how the preconditions that you've already established there in terms of relationships with the community that you'd like to interact with, the importance of that already being in place before the pandemic hits so that when the pandemic comes, you can work a bit more quickly, I think, to frame out an oral history project that captures this time. I, those are just to be seen very important aspects of this kind of work. Hannibal, let me bring you in on it and maybe you can tell us how the current project you're doing attaches to what LaRotha was just telling us. No, and, and uh, I think you uh, you hit the nail on the head that the, that the networks and the relationships that we already have as being uh, you know, professors uh, within the community it really helps us out a good deal uh, as we move forward. Because uh, you know, COVID, uh, it, 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 uh, it doesn't really answer to anyone. Uh, that's some, something that we've sort of been realizing. Um, and so being able to move quickly, effectively, uh, seamlessly has, 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 uh, has, has really helped. And so um, for instance, our, our, our previous librarian at Fisk University, uh, uh, she has been there for quite some time. But uh, when I brought the project, uh, you know, to her, to her, uh, to her attention, well, she just started listing off different people that I should definitely uh, talk to. She began to direct resources, uh, uh, you know, my way that I should definitely uh, follow. So we've been. Uh, and such as Dr. Ringer had mentioned, we've been looking at uh, different uh, troves of, of, of data. Uh, I know that once the, um, once the uh, uh, I guess the, the archives, uh, the Tennessee Historical Archives opens up, we're going to make use of that. But right, right now we're looking at different archives from different other places. We're looking at special collections. Um, and it also gave me the opportunity to kind of look uh, more closely at even former HBCUs in Nashville, uh, you know, Tennessee State University, Meharry uh, Medical College and Fish University, as well as the uh, American Baptist College. Uh, 
know, those are the HBCUs now, but there used to be a you know, Roger Williams University uh, uh, as well. Um, that is, it was situated on present day uh, Vanderbilt campus, their Peabody campus, uh, but it was burnt down a few times. And the last time they burnt, it was burnt down, uh, they decided not to you know, resurrect it, just to move forward. But just having an opportunity to kind of comb through those records as well, because it is not just um, doctors and nurses that are responding to some of these crises. There are also pastors. There are also people of the clergy. In uh, Roger Williams University, American Baptist College, uh, they produce uh, a good deal of the, you know, the clergy in North Nashville. Uh, so, so it's it's been good. Uh, we have plans to interview different individuals. Uh, uh, these are, well, for instance, I, I, I'm in the midst of, of speaking to a a former nurse, a former nurse. And actually, when I spoke to her, when I first broached the subject with her, she actually gave me the names of a few other nurses. A woman who I have known my whole life, I never knew that she was a nurse because she was always, you know, uh, retired. Uh, uh, but I guess that kind of ages me. But uh, she was a, she was a nurse. She actually went to Tennessee State University uh, 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 and she uh, went to uh, the nursing program at, at Meharry. And I look forward to, uh, you know, speaking about these things with her as well, because I'm sure that. Uh, 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 she has there's just there's just treasures like that in our midst that sometimes you know uh, we miss. But being able to uh, uh, get out into the community and just and, and have these conversations, have these discussions, uh, you kind of never know uh, uh, what type of you know you know jewels that you have uh, in your midst. And so the thing about Nash North Nashville, uh, you know, like and, and this sort of creates like a panoramic of of, of uh, it, it shows us um, the beauty of creating this perspective of North North Nashville's responses to uh, pandemics and the like. And, and uh, North Nashville is, is pretty much where the uh, where the bulk of Nashville's uh, uh, black residents dwell, right? They, uh, that's pretty much where the bulk. So. Uh, 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 like Dr. Williams had mentioned, telling their story is is integral. Uh, being able to uh, kind of go through uh, uh, the historical record and uh, craft a, a narrative using their voices, it's, uh, it's essential. And it also has normative implications because we're able to uh, learn from the past we want to make sure that we uh, don't make the same mistakes uh, that we made in the past, try to learn from some of those things. But also, maybe we can also uh, pick up and uh, do some of the things that we did really well in response to previous uh, uh, pandemics. Because, uh, I mean, honestly, it's really a, a matter of life and death. Uh, uh, so, yeah. Andrea, let me bring you in on on that. Thank you, Hannibal, because that connection of the past and how it meets the stream of fear and concern and disease with COVID-19 is really important. Among historians, we don't have to explain this to each other, but outside of our group, 
oftentimes we do get asked, what's the point of history anyway? Why would we need to bother that? And we're focused on the future. And yet COVID-19 has demonstrated that that past, we're talking, for example, of Meharry Medical College, that past of segregation and inequality in public health, that's not a thing of some distant bygone past. Mm-hmm. Andrea, your thoughts on that and how that, that kind of sensibility um, filters into the project that you're working on? Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, um, going back to the um, the connections bill, you know, another way uh, what Dr. Williams said, where he always brings students in, he does. There are these connections that we already have with students. So another way that this project was able to move forward so quickly is we already had students to, to immediately hire, you know. Um, and on top of that, we already had folks who um, um, in all sorts of community positions that we were able to speak to as well. Um, one of the perspectives that we're going to get on this oral history project is um, a student who is moving from T- graduating from TSU, going to Meharry in the fall. And we really want that perspective of someone who is choosing to enter medical school during a pandemic, what that means, what it's meant to move from an HBCU uh, undergrad right to uh, medical school. Um, so those sorts of things um, have really made the project sort of seamless from the other institutional um, and community histories we've been doing. Andrea, let me just stay with you for a minute because I'm also interested in how students there reacted last year. I mean, it was multiple disasters all in one disaster last year. I mean, we had the pandemic, but then we had um, the various murders that shocked Americans. Um, And, you know, campuses and cities erupted in necessary protest. How did that look there? Yeah, we uh, our our disaster was sort of fourfold at TSU. We started the year with uh, power outages. Um, I know Dr. Williams will, will speak about that in a minute, but um, which speaks to you know structural inequality of, of how we didn't have those power grids um, updated. Then the pandemic hit. We had then had tornadoes that came through. Um, a tornado that came through Nashville. Um, it hit TSU, so we had millions of dollars of damage at TSU. That happened. Um, weeks after the pandemic hit, after the school closed. Um, and yeah, and then during the summer, we had um, th- these protests, right? The Black Lives Matter protests, which had been on- ongoing, right? This is a years long um, um, protest. And so uh, for students, I think particularly um, in history classes, uh, it, it's so um, it's so integral that we are very upfront with it. We don't ignore any of that, right? Like all the history that we're talking about, I teach a lot of American history classes. It's all um, very tied into what happened in summer of, of um, 2020, right? In those protests. And so we come into the classroom in the well, virtual classroom in the fall. Um, and that's very much part of what we're speaking about and talking about. And when this project as well, when we're thinking about the um, inequities, right? They exist within Nashville um, and elsewhere as well. It's very much part of, um, and resource inequities particularly, that's very much part of this project, right? Um, and how we approach the importance of this is too. Larotha, let me bring you in on this. And you were one of the authors of an editorial uh, that was published in this context of the power outages in 2019, which is not something I was aware of, but I'm really impressed with what this, what Andrea is laying out is that in some ways you've been in continuous disaster there since the fall of 2019. What a toll that must take on students, faculty, and staff. 
as I was listening to Andrea roll out all of the calamities we went through, I forgot about the Christmas Day bombing that occurred in in Nashville. Um, about that 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 editorial, we um, it it highlighted an event that was a part of a much larger, much longer narrative. And that's the historical underfunding of uh, HBCUs. Now it's not Tennessee State, because if you were to go to Jackson State, you probably could have the same story. Um, it was just remarkable that a lightning strike could shut down a university campus for, I can't even remember how long it seemed, like it went on for months because our students communicate with us and they, they complain and they were, it was a righteous anger. But then when we started thinking about where, how the things get to this point and it got to that point because the, the, the um, school has been underfunded. So you have to take money to do things maybe for the College of Ag that you were supposed to use someplace else then um when we make requests to the state you ask for ask for a million dollars and they give you two hundred thousand dollars um i'll probably never be president of a university because i don't know what to do with that but um this year is um has, has taught me just how vulnerable our students really are. Things that we would assume they would have. Um, they don't. Something as simple as reliable internet, which, you know, us as professionals, we take for granted. Or um, just having a computer in the home. But then you got to couple that with the, the fact that they are in the midst of a pandemic where they are getting sick or their family members are getting sick and they die. Or, or, or um, you know, get sick and the, the, the period of convalescence is really long. A year ago, I was getting emails like every other day from a student telling me that um, maybe a family member or was sick. And sometimes they would send obituaries. And so I, I, I got to the point where um, and said I was gonna be lenient with them because I kind of understood what they were going through, right? Um, my mother passed away from cancer when I was my last year of grad school, and I had to stay in grad school next year because it took me a year to get my mind right to where I could actually study. But we're dealing with 18, 19, 20-year-olds now. We're trying to work their way, trying to process that type of trauma. And then for me as a professor, right, I, um, you know, you get a student as professors, we might have one or two students that are dealing with these sorts of issues, whether it's illness or whether it's death in the family. But I don't think any of us have 
attended a grad school that prepared you for half the class being sick or 75% of the class dealing with family illnesses and they really don't know whether or not the family is going to recover. And then with this new style of teaching that we're doing, um, I've been teaching online classes now for about seven years and I, I, I volunteered because I figured I said, hey, this is one day I might have to do it. And this is the day that I have to do it, but it's under so much stress. Um, I'm having to just rethink pedagogy. I'm just having to rethink the kind of relationship that I have with uh, with students. And, um, you know, right now things seem to be getting better, but I can't really say when the end will finally come, whether we'll ever get back to the thing that we define as being normal, if that'll ever exist again. So um, this this year has been enlightening for me because I always prided myself on recognizing the humanity of my students, right? I've never lost fact that lost track of the fact that, um, you know, these are young people and they're having young people issues, but now um, I'm remembering to rethink that just in terms of how I'm dealing with trauma, how I'm dealing with people that might be hurting, that want to do the assignment, but can't really do this properly because their minds aren't where they would normally be. And then for me as a professor too, um, you can't hear all that stuff and it not have an effect on you on everything from how you assess them to making the determination on what assignments you give. So that's what this year has been like for me. Just want to remind everyone that you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking today with Hannibal Leach, Larotha Williams and Andrea Ringer about HBCUs and public health in the COVID era and the project they're working on around that. Hannibal, just to bring you back in, something very powerful in what Loretta was talking about there, the power of an oral history project uh, to facilitate community interaction, relationships, listening, but also students. And I can't help but think that there's, of course, there's a value to future historians and journalists and we hope policymakers who'd like to know what COVID time is like in Nashville. But there's also seems to be what I'm hearing a value in the moment in terms of almost a therapeutic effect of engaging these discussions. I wonder if that's by design in this project or is that just something that you're seeing emerge with a project like this? Well, uh, a good deal of uh, engagement with the community is something that we definitely all uh, wanted to uh, to take on, but um, but to see the level of engagement that the community, the members of the community actually want to have themselves, that's something that is impressive for me as a social scientist. Uh, I I need information from you know members of the community a great deal, and you know my history or my experience has been people were 
people have been very reluctant <laughs> uh, uh, to, uh, you know, do the interviews, do the do those surveys uh, to uh, uh, to meet you at different places and things like that. Uh, people have been sort of reluctant uh, to do that. But in this project, um we haven't really, well, at least myself, I haven't really seen that everyone that I have engaged with has been very helpful. Um, uh, at an institutional level, um, our special collections at, at Fish University has sort of been closed, but when I brought the project to them, they were very uh, happy to uh, make a lot of things available uh, online, uh, they were able to sort of open up so I could go in there, you know, physically, even if I wanted to, to kind of access different materials and the like. So it's been a, it's been a, it's been a, a, a very uh, enjoyable experience uh, dealing with that. And I think even from the student's perspective, um, um, of course, I won't tell my faculty, uh, but uh, I, I won't tell the names of my faculty, but really just sort of you know, making sure that I even uh, document the notes that I take throughout the day uh, about, you know, kind of what's going on in my own day. Because early on, so, uh, like Dr. Williams had mentioned, uh, this was an experience that was very new to a lot of faculty. Uh, you know, having students going home uh, very abruptly, uh, you know, and professors, uh, we want to continue to, um, uh, uh, preserve the academic integrity of the university as well as we also want to maximize the, the educational experience. And so we want students to be engaging um, even online, even when we do projects and things like that. And many professors had a hard time realizing that, you know, students, you know, not every student is like your typical student with a cell phone or, or, or this, that, and the other, the smartphone. You know, mo many students also, many students don't have a camera on their cell phones. Mm -hmm. And so this is something that we had to find out the hard way. Um, many students don't have a, uh, a camera on their computers. Uh, uh, and we, and a lot of us had to find this out the hard way. Uh, so it took a lot of of, of massaging and talking and meeting with our own faculty to sort of get them in the space to so that they can understand to just be a little bit more sensitive in this in this in this time uh, when it comes to things like projects uh, when it comes to things such as papers um, because you know some some students can write a, you know do their work on their smartphone but some work just doesn't I mean, it's just a little bit more complex where you can't do these sorts of things. Um, and even when you look at the makeup of a lot of our students, right, a lot of our students are in you know small rural towns in West Tennessee, even East Tennessee. A lot of our students uh, come from the Delta areas of, of Mississippi and Alabama. And unfortunately, uh, many of these areas, they live in counties where, you know, they may have a public library. They may they may not. And the public library may may not even have internet. Uh, uh, and so uh, so uh, there's a place in uh, Mississippi known as West Point. West Point. Well, if you know anything about West Point, if you don't have a landline, then you are pretty pretty much screwed because there is no cell data there. You can't call into a cell phone. 
you can you can send a get a text through sometimes, uh, but to to call uh, that's that's it's it's pretty much an, an impossible. So if you're trying to use your cell phone or anything like that to do work or to uh, engage with your professor, that sort of thing is you're gonna have to go to a another uh, another county for that. But I say all that to to say that. Um, this is this sort of thing needs to be documented. It needs to be part of the narrative, uh, um, so that uh, uh, we can kind of get a, a, a full a full a full view of what life is like uh, in these sort of pandemics. What type of challenges, uh, uh, you know, people in professional settings. And I always say, you know, college is a professional setting. You know, the people that make up the our students. They are young professionals. They are young scholars, and the and their professors. So even in the professional setting, we still have a, a lot of work that we need to do to make sure that um, uh, you know when we have these situations uh, that we are uh, cognizant of sort of the, I guess the what could come about in these sorts of situations um, on a. I guess on, uh, from a student's perspective, um, we have, Dr. Ringer has a few students as well, and I've brought the project up uh, to a few students as well. Uh, and the students, they feel the same way, right? Um, unfortunately, um, many colleges, this is like the, this could be the death knell for a lot of colleges. Uh, this could be like the final blow. So if you were a college and you were teetering on the edge, before COVID, COVID, the COVID nineteen pandemic could be the uh, the straw that broke the camels or the horses, the the back basically. <laughs> um, um, and, and I say that because uh, from a student's perspective, um, uh, going to college is one of those things that it that is like a culmination of your entire childhood, right? It's like the culmination of your entire their entire childhood, and from the conversations that I have with students, a lot of the students need to come to college. They need to sort of get out of the household like sooner rather than later because of things that are going on in their own lives, things that are going on in their in their neighborhoods. They need they need the they need the space outside of their own uh, 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 you know immediate household in order to think clearly to study. Uh, 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 they need to see uh, professionals that look like them. They need to see professionals, people that sort of care about their intellectual uh, 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 you know, trajectory and things like that. So, from the students' perspective, from my, you know, from what I hear, uh, it's it's been it's been very tough. But being able to articulate, you know, what they're saying uh, into this narrative is going to be important. And, you know, I think that uh, a lot of people are looking forward to, you know, uh, uh, the culmination of our project because you're going to see a lot in, in it uh, that uh, maybe, we, maybe we took for granted. Andrea, let me bring you in on that. And I just want to make sure I note um, how much I love the respect with which you all talk about your students. I mean, that's just, it's not necessarily the focus of our discussion here today, but it's come through this entire conversation that you see them as collaborators and 
talk to them as professionals. And um, that's just really important, I think. And of course, that also helps build a culture where you're going to get a project like this done. <laughs> and that's important, too. Um, Andrea, to that point, where's the what will the outcomes be? I sometimes get a note just the other day on COVID calls. I got a note from a listener who said, you know, I like COVID calls, but um, talk about solutions a little bit more. I said, OK, OK, well, let's let's do that. Um, what are some of the. I don't want to leave people with false optimism, but what are some of the things you think that might be gathered as lessons, um, outcomes, possible solutions that might come from a project like this as you document what's happening right now with COVID there? Yeah, you know, one of the um, one of the pushes at TSU that we were making, Dr. Williams and I were making um, about a month prior to the pandemic breaking out, and we're still in the midst of it, is a paid family leave policy. So we had push, been pushing on campus. We don't have any paid family leave at TSU. And this, um, you know, is common in the South. Um, we, we don't expect any paid family leave coming down as, as a state law. And so it's something that we're trying to push through the faculty Senate. And COVID, uh, even though that's what we wanted, was this inclusive family leave rather than um, like maternity leave or, or uh, paid parental leave, what COVID allowed us to do is really be able to show how important it is to have paid family leave, how important it is when you have a family member who, who falls ill um, and to be able to take care of that person. Um, and so, you know, we're still in the midst of that, but policies like that, I hope, are, are some of the things that are gonna happen on campus and change um, where these conversations, we can have them more, you know, more openly. I think they're more accepted of, we need to think more holistically about folks working on campus, right? Um, so I'm hoping like documenting things like that are, are, are going to be really, really important, documenting the sorts of things that, um, that we're seeing on campus. Um, and, you know, like Dr. Williams and Dr. Leach said, just the experiences, particularly of our students, um, we've had a lot of deep conversations of where these oral histories should go um, and will go. And, and we, we are talking with um, like Meharry grads who are in the Nashville community, but also with folks who... Um, you know, again, we know through the classroom, right? Thinking about what that experience has been like, just being in that, like Dr. Leach said, documenting um, these things. And, and again, it really works off of um, kind of the framework that Dr. Williams set up with the, with the North Nashville Heritage Project, right? Of like who we were speaking to are these folks um, often who wouldn't be spoken to in an oral history project. And so um, we are thinking about the historical trajectory and using oral histories for that, but also thinking about documenting the contemporary moment with those um, as far as what the project will look like, we're, we have this oral history collection. Um, we have an Omeka site. We have a graduate student, a computer science graduate student working with us. So that'll be part of the public facing um, part of it. Um, and we also have a, a blog series uh, through History at Work, which is a public history um, that, through the National Council of Public History, where we're going to sort of bring these together and sort of stories and how uh, folks throughout history in North Nashville have sort of contended with pandemics. Uh, that's quite a lot of outputs that you're imagining there. And that's really exciting um, to hear. Just Andrea, let me stay with you one second. And then um, uh, Larotha, I'm gonna turn to you for maybe a final word, but um, because this came up in the previous COVID calls I had around Philadelphia and talking particularly with some folks um, advocating for just recovery in Philadelphia from the pandemic. And, and we talked a lot about college students and the fact that people, there might be a sort of general perception out there 
that, you know, all college students are wealthy and privileged. And so, you know, something like a pandemic won't affect their their lives. And I'm sure that is rep- that may be accurate for some subset of American college students or around the world. But I think it's not true in the main. Mm-hmm. And that even in Philadelphia, um, lack of access to food. I mean, students going hungry, students without a, a cell phone plan, as Hannibal was saying, students who don't have access to the Internet. And we just assume we can flip the switch and turn the university into an online uh, experience. Um, documenting those needs is not just about the future. It's also, I would hope, about getting the interest of policymakers in the now. I, I, I don't get the sense that your, your project is um, structured to be political necessarily, but how can it not be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of our students are essential workers. You know, when, um, when COVID hit and so many, you know, so many of us got to sort of bunker down in our homes. They didn't, I, you know, I had students whose, um, whose work schedule doubled essentially, right? The folks that were working at Walmart and, and Kroger and things like that, and um, these spaces that didn't close. And so, yeah, I mean, that that's a more typical um, experience of a lot of our students. Um, so, yeah, I think that's important to sort of bring to the, to the light uh, with this. Um, and, you know, Thinking about just uh, again inequity um, in general, when we the quote that really st- stuck out to us, the reason we decided, yeah, let's go ahead and engage, let's put this proposal in, um, is Dr. Hildreth, uh, who's the president of Meharry. Um, he gave a congressional testimony pretty early in the pandemic, and uh, the quote that that I just remember so vividly, he said, "Arm us with resources." Talking about Meharry, right? Send resources, and if you send these resources, we can do something with them. And that just struck me because it, they're in all the things because we had been collecting newspapers and kind of looking at pandemics. We had seen that echoed so many times of um, this is a lack of resources. Right. And if you send the resources and it's been amazing. And part of what I'm really excited to, to bring to light is is what Meharry has done. Right. The role that they have played as a as a testing site, as one of the major testing sites here in Nashville um, and vaccination you know, and, and vaccinations as well. Um, so I'm really excited about that part of it, too. Well, thank you for that. We're almost up on time with my guests here on COVID calls today. And uh, Loretta, I want to turn to you maybe for a closing word. We really appreciated when we talked about the history of HBCUs and we kind of have traced that history, you know, through time from the Civil War forward. Thinking about that, I'm just really struck by the fact that if you wanted to understand higher education in America and how it has persevered in the face of disaster, that HBCUs would be the place you would start. I mean, talking about founding these in the aftermath of the Civil War and through the Reconstruction period, and then of course, Jim Crow and and a continuous set of struggles, often with protest and violence, either in the neighborhoods surrounding these campuses or on the campuses themselves, and now we find ourselves in COVID. There is, to me, a striking continuity there. And I guess I wonder if you could reflect on that a little bit, because I think that to me is something I'll really take away from this conversation. I, um, CSU is my second job. My first job was in Savannah. And um, as one of the few black faculty on a predominantly white campus, I was like the academic advisor for every group imaginable on campus. 
But one in particular, I was the faculty advisor for the NAACP, the student chapter the NAACP. And I would take our dues or whatever money we made to the um, to the president of the city chapter. And um, the president at that time was a former president of Savannah State University, which is an HBCU. His name was Dr. Prince Jackson. And, and he asked me a question one day. Um, he asked me what I plan to do at at Armstrong. And I was like, well, we're working on establishing a, um, a black studies program. And I want to do this, that, and the third, right? But then he also, he, he, he said this to me. He said, whatever you do as a do strive to do something that matters beyond academia, beyond the ivory tower. And I think that's the whole ethos of historically black colleges and universities. Because um, in order to remain at these sites, we have to do the same thing everybody else in academia does, you know, publish or perish and so forth. Um, but I, I see my position at TSU is requiring a little bit more than that. It requires us to prepare our students to be valuable beyond academia, but also, um, if possible, to um, engage in research, engage in projects such as the one that um, Dr. Ringer and Dr. Leach and um, myself are involved in, things that's going to resonate beyond the ivory tower. Um, I'm involved in this, but my, my motives are not entirely just benign, right? Because whatever we come up with, I'm going to present this to our policymakers and point out how the flaws that we uncovered are, are, are um, not aberrations. This is how it usually goes in North Nashville, whereas this, this, this community has typically been one of the poorest in the city. In the, quote, it city, it has always been one of the most neglected parts of it. So it, when we look at this, and we'll see um, by the time all this is said and done, we'll see how we had people that were living blocks away from a Harry Medical College, um, struggled to get a COVID test, or they struggled maybe getting transportation to, um, to vaccination sites. Um, so in looking at this, this project in you know, it's a scholarly project, but it's, it's in my mind, it's going to be political in that it'll help hold a mirror up to the city to show it, show it and the world, you know, what we really are um, and how oftentimes our words don't line up with our deeds, with our actions. But I think... Um, on the back end of it, I, I, I think this will be something that we and our, and our students 
will remember going forward. Because, you know, anticipating questions 10, 15, 20 years down the line, what were you doing during the pandemic? Well, I know one of our students will say, hey, I made an Omeka website. You know, by then people will be like, what's Omeka? What is that? Um, but then you have others that said, I remember talking to this nurse who graduated from Meharry Medical College about this period. So this is um, this this the importance of the work that we're doing is is slowly dawning on me. And who knows, it might be a historic thing. You might have a Ringer Leach Center at Fisk University one day because of this. I don't know, but I'm hoping for it. I wouldn't doubt that for a minute. And uh, realizing as we're talking, I'm going to need to, so consider this the invitation. I'm going to need to bring you back in about six months so that you can update us on on some of the data collection and, and what that's meant. Um, what a privilege to speak to you all today. And just to remind everyone that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, a program note that on Monday, we will have a special time at 10 a.m. Eastern time. I'm gonna be talking to Georgia representative Nakima Williams, an extraordinary uh, representative, new member of the House of Representatives. She's representative of the Georgia 5th District. So I hope you will join me for COVID calls, special COVID calls on Monday at 10 a.m. And just to thank my guests again, Lorotha Williams, Hannibal Leach, and Andrea Ringer, thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for taking time at the end of the day to explain it to us all, and best of luck with the project. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. Stay healthy, everybody, and we will see you on Monday, 10 a.m. Eastern Time.